Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 1 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair. And I'm Andrew. And we are your hosts for a show that aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening in the world of Earth observation at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. We also live on Twitter with a dedicated podcast account, at EOSceneFrom, and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. We encourage you to follow our Twitter account. Okay, let me do my launches. It's only been two weeks since we last spoke. We're now up to 20 payload launches, according to Space Track. Okay. The launches have come out of China and India. And the thing of interest this time is a satellite called Jilin. A pair have gone up this January and the pair went up in November 2017. And these are going to be one meter spatial resolution and we're going to get video from them as well. It's a push broom scanner. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I think the point is that disruption in this industry is often associated with Silicon Valley and the easy access to capital that's causing the boom in CubeSats and the like. Yeah. But one of the big disruptions that's taking place in the space sector is coming out of Asia. Many things are being launched and are planned to be launched. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, there's more choice. This has always been one of the things that people have talked about. There's more choice that, you know, you're, not, you're less reliant upon one. And that should drive the price down. I think we're set fair for another exciting year. Hooray. Right, let's do the news. 6th February 2019. It's February already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> What's happened? Is, uh, it's, it's mad, isn't it? I can't keep up with how fast things are, f- are flying by. The thing that I was going to mention was uh, I was at an event organised by the SSGP and the UK Space Agency. And at that event, they did an announcement about the size of the UK space sector today. And I can share the infographic that they've shared. Yeah, it's all positive stuff. R&D expenditures almost half a billion we're faced at the end of March with interesting times in the UK. But the news at the moment is that we've had another 3,400 new jobs created in the space sector. So obviously it doesn't just include Earth observation, but across the whole spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Huge credit to SSGP who held the event that I was at, a, a big networking event and showcasing some of the amazing projects that the UK government have been involved in this year. They've procured a back catalogue of high-resolution Pleiades data. And if you're working in the government sector in the UK, you can get hold of this data and they want you to start using it. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? And I've also got Cosmos SkyMed as well. It shows that within government, they have seen the potential of Earth observation and what it can do. And someone has put their hand in their pocket got the budget and managed to purchase these data sets and i think it really is up to the sort of downstream sector now to make a case for how powerful some of these products and applications can be yeah really good news for the uk and let's hope it continues indeed um i've got two bits of news about synthetic aperture radar software I'll be honest, I, I saw these on your Twitter account and so I pinched them. <laughs> 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 One of them comes from NASA and it's basically a new tool for analysing SAR imagery and they make the case that it can be used to stack images from Sentinel-1 
products, but it can be used on other things such as Pulsar, etc. I think the software is called Hype 3, which is Hybrid Pluggable Processing Pipeline. Anything that makes handling Sentinel-1 data yeah. easier for the end user, I think definitely is a, a big plus. And so the second piece of software that I want to mention is coming out of France. So it's from Cespio and SNES, and it's called S1 Tiling and is a system that has been developed to, again, generate time series of calibrated, author-rectified, and filtered Sentinel-1 images. The cool thing about the S1 tiling piece of software is that it's Python and is based on the Orfeo toolbox, which we've mentioned before. And it can be used either on a, a sort of a large computing cluster or just on your local laptop. Yeah, I think both of these are interesting new additions to handling and processing of radar data. You know, you make a really good point that radar data always has this sort of background of there's got to be a lot of pre-processing. So to get analysis-ready data in time series is a great thing. Um, but we've sort of talked about it a little bit before, haven't we? The thing that most struck me was that this is being author rectified on the Sentinel-2 gridding system. So yeah. in sort of theory, feels like you could have a data cube with Sentinel-1 and Sentinel-2 as separate layers within that cube. If that isn't the case, then and I apologize for making an assumption, but this is, this is all about getting access to the data. Along that same topic, I saw this bot that's been created, Synthetic Aperture Random. Um, <laughs> have you seen this? It's on, it's on Twitter. Okay, it's no, I haven't. tweeting out every day a random Sentinel-1 SAR image, and the data, the back end of this is being processed in Google Earth Engine, so all through a Python API. This, this made me smile because we get Landsat bots and there's the Sentinel-2 bot and all, all these things. But this is the first one I saw for Sentinel-1. This is a nice idea. And, and you know, I, I really applaud people who sort of take the effort to try and put these pipelines together. Yeah, and, there's some nice images in there. They've, they've coloured them up pretty well. Yeah, sort of funny news. But it's all, about, it's all about SAR this month, isn't it? This next news item that I have... I, I've been waiting for a while to mention this company. So it's a UK startup and it's called Sensat. And they do some absolutely amazing things around beyond line of sight flight using drones. But that's not what I want to talk about today, although I think they did use some of that technology to help them do this. But they have mapped the entire phase one route of the proposed HS2 rail line from London to Birmingham. So this is a high-speed rail line that's causing quite a lot of controversy in the UK about whether it should go ahead or not. But the first phase of that line will go from London to Birmingham, and then uh, a second phase will go from Birmingham further north. And the thing that was cool about this is they've, <laughs> the, they reckon that the corresponding data set that they've collected has 18.4 billion data points. And I don't even know how they hold that amount of information. I mean, again, it's just stunning to think about that. And some of the images that they've collected and they've, they've posted online, again, are they're really beautiful images. So well done, Sensat, I say. Yeah, interesting stuff, isn't it? 18.4 billion data points. Because you've got to surely carve that up, haven't you, to be able to do something with it? Or have you? Yeah. Well, you, you, yeah, I don't know. 
they're pushing the, the boundary in terms of how they do the data collection. Maybe they're pushing the boundary in terms of how they do the uh, data analytics and storage and everything else as well. Um, yeah, good stuff. This thing by Esri caught my eye. They said ArcGIS notebooks will be coming in a new capability for something called ArcGIS Enterprise. Now, I hold my hands up. I don't really know what that is. Uh, I guess I could look into it a bit more as we have so many ArcGIS somethings. But this is interesting because basically it's Jupyter Notebooks for ArcPy. This is a new thing. I think it's more sort of cloud-based. I think the general point really that I wanted to make is that it's yet another step forward to working with code and accessing data and processing data in Python in Jupyter Notebooks. They're just becoming so ubiquitous. I think it's worth keeping an eye out on it. Surely if you had ArcPy installed on your system and you had Jupyter Notebooks installed on your system, you'd be able to load ArcPy into it. Oh, no, I'm sure you can. Right, okay. I think this is, yeah, online. Okay. As I say, I need to know what Arc Enterprise is. Okay. I think this is going to be something that's going to be picked up quite a bit this year. I think it's great. Another company embracing the notebooks. My final bit of news, well, it's more of an update than news. So there's something called, again, from NASA, something called Adopter Pixel, which has been around since sort of 2013 in the form of a web service. And what it allows you to do is go out and take some photos of an area and they'll be geospatially tagged. And then you can sort of upload those and the Landsat Science team will use them as a way of crowdsourcing ground truth information, really. And the sort of update bit is that this Adopter Pixel service has now been incorporated into something called NASA's Globe Observer app. So this is something you can put on your mobile device and then you can go out and take photos and enter basic observations about the terrain and the vegetation type and land use and, and things like that. And that's the news. As part of this episode, we have another interview for you. This time we've got Kate Doyle from 2XL Geospatial. So hi there, Kate. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are? Hello, Alistair and Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so my name is Kate Doyle and I'm a geospatial developer at 2XL Geo. 2XL Geo is actually part of a bigger company called 2XL Aviation, who kind of do world-class bespoke solutions in the aviation sector. So our part within that, we have a plane. We collect data from our plane, uh, well, hyperspectral data. So that comes in 474 bands and we kind of look at different areas within the environment domain. So that can be anything from conservation to forestry and um, the manned aircraft is kind of our main source of of data but we also take a problem-centric view so looking at um satellites and things as well yeah so i would i'd say that's probably an, a little overview do you fly anything other than hyperspectral so we have a phase one rgb camera as well and then veneer and swear what's phase one what's a phase one camera that's that's just the make of the camera oh okay yeah, so it's just an, an RGB kind of true color camera and then the VNA one and a, a SWEAR one and that gives us then the 474 bands. And what sort of resolutions, sort of spatial resolutions you're getting? Well, it depends on how high we fly um, and at what speed we fly. So if we're flying at 500 meters, about 90 knots, which you kind of, you need to go slower when, when you're at a lower height. In the RGB, we can get down to three centimeters. Uh, Sphere at that is 37 and Veneer is 16. Uh, but then we can go up to 10,000 feet or higher 
kind of that the RGB is 19, the sphere is 2.2, and the veneer is 98 centimeters. That's pretty amazing. I mean, they're still below a meter, even if you're up at 10,000 feet. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's quite nice for, for applications where you where you probably need a higher resolution than you could get from satellite imagery. I think another benefit is, as well as being able to fly below the cloud. So we can also kind of simulate different satellite sensors, but with the freedom to operate below below the cloud level. Yeah, that must be nice to be able to, to get some satellite imagery and then go out and, and replicate that, but with your system, with the control that you guys have. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Oh, Have you got any uh, restriction on on minimum order? You know, with a satellite, we can buy minimum order for VHR data, very high resolution data, 25 yeah. square kilometers. I mean, obviously, I'm not, I always make this sort of semi joke where I say, can I buy a pixel off you? One day someone will say yes. Yeah, then my question is completely void, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, theoretically, you could buy a pixel, but it's going to cost us to, to get the plane up and flying and, and out and about. So, just depends but we kind of done we've done bigger areas as well we fly at different different scales definitely oh that's amazing so you've been on one of these planes uh yes i have i've been up on a couple of collects actually so one of them we were flying over a woodland which wasn't far from here so that was about 12 strips uh that was an interesting photogrammetry day because we were dodging a lot of showers um and then the other one we were kind of going all around so we went up to humber the humber estuary and then back down to Cambridge as well, kind of collecting a few sites there. So yeah, I've, I've been up a couple of times. Yeah. So, so what's it like? Is it sort of quite bumpy or? It's really different to flying on a commercial plane, which I wasn't expecting. And kind of being, because you're lower towards the clouds than you would be in a commercial airplane, it's, it can be quite bumpy sometimes. So we had a couple of people who, who worked here before and they couldn't do it because they got airsick they had to kind of they got so far <laughs> and then they had to come back again because it was just too much so it really depends on the person kind of how how they deal with being, being bounced around i suppose but our collections manager steve he's he's kind of an old hat he he counts his flying hours um on a little kind of turntable downstairs i think he's got over 600 at the moment so wow. it doesn't really affect him so much but i was a bit worried when i first went out that it would be sick inducing but no it was it was fine. How much is pre-programmed in, you know, like a drone, you would say fly for this long or? Yeah, we have to plan out the flight lines before we go. Yeah. Um, so kind of what, what normally happens is people give us the area that they want to collect. And then Steve will plan the flight lines over that, figure out how many it's going to be, when they need to turn. So when we're in the plane, that's already programmed into the software. So he has it on his, his screen to know when to turn the camera on, but the pilot at the front also has it so they know how far they are off the line and where they should be flying and where to get kind of the straightest path to get the best imagery. Yeah, so it's not like an autopilot then? No, no, we have a pilot. Yeah, I know, but it's not like you get to a certain altitude and then you say, right, follow this predefined grid pattern. It's trying to do it as best within the human judgment of it. Yeah, pretty much. Can. Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. It's quite nice in a way because, for instance, the, the first time that I went out flying when it was, we were kind of dodging those rain showers, if a cloud comes across, then Steve's seeing the imagery as it comes in and he can say, right, actually, that strip wasn't good enough. So let's go and do it again. Yep. As long as it's not a, a massive area, obviously, then it's quite nice to be able to, to if, if a problem does arise, to be able to fix it. Is that sort of quite a big post-processing challenge then? Oh, yes. 
<laughs> you know, you've got you're moving around all over the place, cloud showers and and the like. Is it just sort of literally just one? ream of data as it were what's the sort of raw format that comes so when it comes initially it's obviously very wibbly wobbly is probably the best way to describe it <laughs> that's a scientific term yeah <laughs> yeah so wibbly wobbly timey wimey um it's, uh yeah kind of because you've got the roll the pitch and the yaw of the plane that's going to affect how it looks so the first thing you have to do is kind of straighten it out into nice strips but then that obviously means that the strip, the strips will still wiggle even though the imagery is straight because of the way it's been flown. So we have quite a high overlap between the images to account for the fact that in some areas maybe you'll get a gap if you've kind of yawed off to the left a little bit. Yeah. Just before we move on to the sort of analysis side of things too much, um, mm -hmm. just so I've got a picture in my head, when you're out collecting the data are you looking at a screen or are you looking around you that's one of the things i've always thought is that if i was to go up in an aircraft i'd get so distracted from what it was i was supposed to be doing <laughs> i'd be looking out the window going like oh look at that cool thing over there or that thing over there exactly so sometimes we do actually have to bring a spotter up with us to check for hazards in the air so the aircraft flying past i always thought that's a really cool job you just get to look <laughs> out the window but it's while we're flying to the site you don't really have to to keep an eye on it and the the screen that we, we look at with the software on tells you how far away from the line you are. So as okay. you get closer, it kind of, you can see the, the plane coming in. It's just kind of a diagrammatic thing. Yeah. Um, you can tell how far away you are. So when you need to start paying attention to so what Steve normally does is he, he counts down. He's like, okay, 10 seconds over the headset so that the pilot knows that we're coming up to the line as well. And he knows that he has to start collecting. Yeah. yeah. So when you are collecting, you kind of, that's when you, when you're looking at the screen, and seeing how the images are coming through, whether there's some cloud shadow, whether something else gets in the way, whatever. But, but yeah, then, then the rest of the time you can kind of, kind of on the there and back, you can look out the window and take some nice pictures. <laughs> so, so 2018 must have been more or less the perfect campaign season, given usual weather in the UK. Oh, definitely. Were you guys flying most days? It, it kind of got to the point where we were like, our director came in and he was like, we need to fly something. The weather is so good. <laughs> we have to go out and find something to fly. Uh, so that's a couple of things that I think, because uh, I only joined in, in June. Um, uh, okay. There's a couple of things I think that they've been wanting to try for a while that we flew just, just because the weather was, was so good. And it, it's really interesting looking at the data now because I think there was quite a lot in the press about it at the time, but you can see these archaeological things that you couldn't see before. Yeah. Especially with the hyperspectral as well, that kind of adds another element. So it's not just the visible, but in that as well, it's, it's really interesting. You said you were a geospatial developer. What, what does that mean? Once all the data has been processed, I kind of work with the end product. So looking at analysis um, of the data and being able to make maps from it, kind of make nice outputs. Uh, so I've been working on doing some habitat mapping okay. from our data. And one of my colleagues is working, she's doing tree, tree mapping. We do quite a lot with trees. Okay. Um, so that's kind of more what I do is like the end, the end user stuff, I suppose. The processing is long and complicated and I think it's mostly written in IDL. So that was going to be one of my questions actually was, are you using open source libraries or are you using sort of proprietary software that's designed to handle workflows like this? And it's saying For the processing? Yeah, for the processing. It's all kind of custom built, I think, but it, it works with Envy. Yeah, okay. But, but a lot of the functions, I think, have kind of been developed over time. 
in-house. Good to get a bit of envy on the podcast. Because envy is also has that hyperspectral background. That's that's why it's preferred because it does deal very well with that data in comparison to other softwares. So did you have experience with hyperspectral before you got there? I think it's, it's something that's really going to take shape in the next few years. As far as I know at the moment, we're the only people in the UK who are doing it. Okay. But I think because it's such such an innovative technology, people kind of at the moment, people don't know that they need it or don't really know what the uses are for it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's used a lot in medical imaging and kind of food processing environment, looking for, for pests and things, like if you're scanning it up close. But I think within the remote sensing field, it's not been explored very widely. And I hadn't used the data before I started here. So <laughs> when I started, I was like, oh my goodness, this is so overwhelming. <laughs> there's, there's so much you can do and there's... Um, because I mean, so we have all the bands, but we also create a lot of vegetation indices. Right. That as a, a couple of hundred. So it's really kind of looking through the data and figuring out what works best. It's just a, a lot of information. Uh, that must be brilliant to be able to actually have the data to create all the indices that you see sort of written down in books and things. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so see this long list and half the time you can only ever use about six or seven of them because you're limited by the number of bands. But to have all that perspective yeah no, it's really cool so what about handling the volumes of data though was it 476 bands or something you said For, 474 <laughs> band inflation already <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so like that's just that's tons of data especially at the resolutions you were talking about yeah exactly storage wise yeah we've, we've got quite a nice server that, that we put it on but it's yeah it's, it's very overwhelming we kind of do different processing levels as well though um okay. so normally the only ones that get sent out are the the top level ones that we we process there's a really interesting time i mean i was going to ask you having come from a sort of academic background yeah and i'm quite conscious of quite a lot of people who listen to this podcast are students or researchers or at universities or with an academic background how have you found the transition between academia to being part of a job uh well so i did i did up to masters and i kind of got fed up with academia i wanted to actually do something in in the real world that was gonna as corny as it sounds make a difference (laughs) or something that was going to be a a real use application rather than theoretical Um, so it's been really nice in that sense kind of working on projects and giving the data to people and learning more or even actually doing practical stuff that I learned the theory for during during my degrees yeah so kind of putting into practice like okay well I I do vaguely remember learning about hyperspectral but I didn't use it but now doing this or oh so that's what a commission error is so that's how you do this that's how you do that it's it's nice in that sense to finally be able to to put it into practice because another thing that we have is we do field spectroscopy as well so if we're going out we need to collect ground truth spectral signatures uh, and that was something that I'd never done before was working with with a spectrometer. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that, is, it's really good to get the real life <laughs> experience of it, I suppose. Do you feel like the higher education system was an enabler to you? That it prepared you for the work environment? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't no. Like it did. No. Because, because but then again, I should add the caveat that I did my master's in Germany. So it could be a little bit different, but I don't feel like there was enough practical understanding or kind of emphasis on how remote sensing and GIS was, was used in a working sense. 
it was more this is the theory and this is how it could be used or what could you use remote sensing for what problems could you look at but it wasn't yeah actually looking at what people were doing in the real world. That's really interesting because we've yeah. heard in the past people saying that quite a lot of GIS courses are basically just churning out people who know how to use a specific piece of software. But it's quite interesting to hear that also on the remote sensing earth observation side, that it's not really preparing people for the world of work. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like I've learned so much more in the past seven or eight months being here than I have in my my degrees <laughs> because it's not book knowledge you're actually doing it yeah. so it kind of you you get used to it and you learn it better because you're doing the thing rather than just someone giving you a, a book and saying read this teach yourself how to use our software it's like okay i need to learn how to use this to be able to do this task yeah. it's kind of being able to push yourself i think do you think there are plenty of courses out there for this uh so i know when i was looking back in 2014 and 15 Mm -hmm. there really weren't that many courses geared towards what i wanted to do uh that's why i found myself looking towards europe was because there wasn't i didn't feel like there was so much in the uk that appealed to me because i know that the geospatial commission is, is something that she's pushing quite a lot but it's i still feel like even with that it's not the remote sensing side isn't very much yeah. in other earth observation it's it's the gis side of things more so overall how did you find the job hunting process was it relatively simple to come out of academia and find a job or not for me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i found it quite difficult but i think again that's because there's a lot that or i would say there's more jobs in gis like a, a local council yeah just kind of got to the point now where they know they need a gis person but they might, or an insurance company or somebody else perhaps, but no one really thinks that they need someone who's good with the remote sensing app observation side of it because I don't think that people understand the use of it so much. Yeah. And it's been quite interesting attending events now of specialists in, in forestry or conservation or whichever sector, and they don't really even know when you, t when you tell them what they could do, even, even with Sentinel stuff, they're like, oh, wow, really? I, didn't really know that. It's, I feel like it's just coming to the forefront now. Yeah. Maybe five, 10 years time, things will be different. Is there any advice that you would give to people who are a couple of years behind you? So they might be doing an MSc now or finishing up a PhD and thinking, right, let's get out there. Well, well, again, it depends. So I probably my biggest piece of advice would be to go out in the summers and do internships if you can, and not necessarily ones that advertise, but kind of unsolicited applications to companies that you think might be useful that you might be interested in because for a long time I think I didn't really know what where I wanted to work and what I wanted to do okay. so kind of having that knowledge of okay well yes I'm actually really interested in this and I would love to work for that company would help skills wise I think that coding data science and machine learning within the remote sensing and earth observation sector are going to become increasingly important um, they already are more so than when, <laughs> when I left university. Um, so I think those are probably good skills to develop. Yeah. And just kind of putting yourself out there. I know, for instance, they, um, is it Leicester or in Harwell? They have the Satachino events. Yeah, down in Harwell. Where students, I assume, can attend. Just chances to network, I think, is probably the best bet. Can you just quickly just let us know the types of applications you do? You said environmental stuff. and the Yeah, so tree health is one of the things we look at. Uh, and we're also working on finding tree species. Okay. We're kind of looking at ash dieback, 
uh, standing deadwood, canopy cover. There's lots of different things that, that we can look at. And the hyperspectral really does lend itself to that as well, especially with the, with the tree health. Okay. Kind of being able to look at things in, in more spectral bands is, is helpful. Do you do anything around sort of water quality, that type of thing? So looking at cyanobacteria? That... Uh, we haven't yet, mainly, mainly terrestrial, mainly land-based. There's so many things you could do. Yeah. That's the problem. It's kind of choosing which to do first. Right. So yeah. they do quite a lot of work with agriculture as well. I'm looking more at the conservation side of things, but it's really trying to narrow down. I mean, we could look at urban areas or, or water quality or anything, but trying to pick which one to do first is the hard thing. Thank you very much, Kate, for coming on the podcast. That was really, really interesting. And it's great to have spoken to you about this. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Um, Before we go, I want to highlight an idea that we've had. We're aware that we have listeners from all around the world, which is awesome, but that because of where we are based, we can have a very European and US viewpoint. We try to bring you stories from as many parts of the world as we can, but we think that we can do better. To do that, we need the help of you, our listeners. So this is quite an ambitious project, but it'd be pretty cool if we could hear from you guys in an episode. So we're going to suggest perhaps you'd like to record two or maybe three minutes of audio about what you're working on, things that interest you in remote sensing, earth observation, geospatial, space sector, that kind of stuff, and send it on. Or alternatively, maybe write a couple of paragraphs about what you're up to, what your interests are, and we can try and read it out on your behalf. But it would be cool if we could have a collection of audio clips that we could process. So yeah, feel free to include your Twitter handle if you want. We'd be interested to hear about technical innovations being made by organizations that you know of that we might not have mentioned before on the podcast or organizations we have mentioned, but not in enough depth. There is one thing we ask, please don't make it a sales pitch for your organization because unfortunately that won't make the edit. Yeah, and obviously we reserve the right to edit anything that you send us, but we'll obviously try and keep the message as true to what you're saying as possible. So you can send your contributions to Seen From Above Podcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And I think we're going to say the cutoff date is going to be the 25th of April of this year. So 25th, April 2019. Yeah. So hopefully you guys think that this is as good an idea as we do. We really look forward to hearing what you have to say about remote sensing as you see it and trying to start a conversation about the global growth of Earth observation. Also, if you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at map underscore Andrew. Um, Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. And please do submit those audio and text submissions as well. Thanks very much for listening. That's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Bye. Bye. Oh, a lot of things have happened in two weeks. Go alone.
Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.